the Hamlet podcast. First, a very quick apology that this episode has been uploaded so late. I've been having woeful computer trouble all of this weekend. Worse even than that, in my eagerness to get it recorded while my computer was actually working, I fear I've been blurring my own lines and calling Bassanio Bassiano. By all means, make a Venetian drinking game of it and take a shot of something every time I get it wrong. A great many years ago, my drama teacher had me work on scenes by Lancelot Gobbo and by Shylock, neither of which were especially suited to an Irish teenager. For the longest time, I suppose I've had it in my head that I think I know this play, The Merchant of Venice. I've been looking at it with fresh eyes this week, realising that I don't know it very well at all. First things first, apparently it's a comedy. According to the cover page of an early edition from 1600, it was called The Most Excellent History of the Merchant of Venice, with the extreme cruelty of Shylock the Jew towards the said merchant in cutting a just pound of his flesh, and the obtaining of Portia by the choice of three chests. This isn't likely to fit on a poster necessarily, or even within a tweet these days, but it does tell us a lot about the play. It's a pretty common quiz question to ask, can you name the Merchant of Venice described in the title of Shakespeare's play? The answer being Antonio. This fuller title clearly insists that his history is excellent and exists in direct contrast with the extreme cruelty of the character that everyone remembers from this play, Shylock. In fact, Shylock appears only in about a quarter of the play's scenes, and while he is one of Shakespeare's most remarkable characters, it is just as much Portia's play. She is also mentioned in that title, and the manner in which she is obtained occupies far more of the play's running time than we tend to remember. Meandering through the play this week, I've been trying to keep track of the way ideas bounce around through its various locations – Obviously the play is set in Venice, but it occupies three very different worlds. There is Antonio's Venice, Shylock's Venice, and Portia's home in Belmont, something like an ultra-rich suburb or a country estate, far enough from the city to be romantic, but close enough that everyone who appears there is still relatively Venetian. But what was Venice to Shakespeare? At his time of writing, it was one of the most important and richest cities in Europe, if not the world. It was the beginning or the end of the Silk Road, and it was from here that Marco Polo left for China, and from here that the Crusade started. We think of it as a city built on water, but really, it was built on money. Shakespeare may never have gone there, but in his mind this was a luxurious, exciting, rich, melting pot, in which, to quote Tony Kushner when he was talking about New York, nothing melted. The significant difference between Shakespeare's London and this Venice, for the purposes of the play, is the presence of anything like a Jewish community. Conjectures suggest that while there might have been one or two hundred Jewish people in London in Shakespeare's time, the vast majority had been expelled at the end of the 13th century. There had been a major public scandal involving a Dr Lopez, a Portuguese Jewish attendant to Queen Elizabeth, and he had been publicly executed soon before Shakespeare wrote this play. The real shadow that spreads large over The Merchant of Venice is Christopher Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta. If Shylock were that titular merchant instead of Antonio, we can imagine that the play would have been called The Jew of Venice in direct conversation with Marlowe's play. The Jew of Malta is an outrageous play about a terribly wicked character who happens to be Jewish, 
but Shakespeare subverts and reinterprets key moments of it in his Jewish play. And the project of creating this story might well have been to get the shadow or the ghost of Marlowe out of his system. It is easy, but I think unfortunate, to imagine that Shakespeare wrote Shylock as a kind of a comic villain, a nasty, wicked, scary Jewish caricature. He writes some of the most extraordinary prose for Shylock, and until this point in his career he's tended to reserve prose for socially inferior characters. An outsider like Shylock might seem to fit that bill, but the character grows and expands, and when his amazing prose isn't enough anymore, he also flips into equally eloquent verse. So he's not just some kind of lower comic character by any means. Shakespeare himself never uses the word ghetto, and couldn't have imagined that the word would take on so many predominantly ugly meanings over the course of the 20th century. The original ghetto was in Venice, and it was where the Jewish population was allowed to live. It was locked up at night, and there was a curfew, and indeed, the community were forced to wear particular kinds of clothes to identify themselves. Shylock refers to his Jewish gabardine, and various productions have made use of the infamous red hats that Jewish men were obliged to wear. There is a clear sense of isolation between the communities. Shylock keeps his precious daughter as out of sight as possible, away from the hijinks of the young men who tear about the town. He also chooses to meet Tubal at the synagogue rather than anywhere more public or recognisably Venetian. Next, we need to discuss the major difference between communities in this Venice, and that is usury. Lending money at interest was a sin, and so a loophole developed. Jewish people could run such businesses since Christian sins did not pose ethical problems for them. Shylock's problem with Antonio apart from an array of nasty anti-Semitic actions like kicking him and spitting on him in the street for his very Jewishness, is that this merchant lends money for free. He drives down the prices and thereby threatens Shylock's livelihood. This whole play is obsessed with money. All relationships depend on it and are defined by it. Portia's golden palace in Belmont, where everything seems to be the colour of some kind of money, is of course the fantasy longed for by the merchants of Venice. Everything, every relationship, is based on money. Antonio's friends are all swaggering venture capitalists, risking big in the hope of winning big. The play features the recently coined word Argosy, derived from the Venetian point of Ragusa, and some of its most exciting poetry is all about ships and seas and travel and commerce. Of course, in order to make these ventures and take these risks, people need to put down sureties and make bonds of monetary promise. The story kicks off because Antonio's friend Bassanio needs money in order to make a play for Portia in Belmont. But Antonio doesn't have enough money right now. So they go to a Jewish money lender, asking him a favour. Shylock himself doesn't have this much money available, so he will go to Tubal. But he spots an opportunity and decides to take a risk of his own, insisting that the bond they make for this money is that if Antonio cannot pay him back these 3,000 ducats in time, Shylock can take a pound of flesh from Antonio. This outrageous notion is so ludicrous that of course Antonio agrees to it. He's confident that his Argosies will be back in no time, so there's really no risk at all. What he doesn't consider is Shylock's determination. So the cash is procured and what appears to be a comedy should proceed apace. If it's a comedy, we should all be on our way to a rollicking eventual wedding, right? Of course. 
In Belmont, Portia is not quite free to marry whoever she wants. We've seen young ladies who are subject to their father's wishes elsewhere in Shakespeare, but her case is unique because her father is controlling her life from beyond the grave. He has stipulated that her suitors have to pick between three caskets, and whoever picks the right one gets her hand, and her apparently limitless fortune. We hear about dreadful boars who have flocked to Belmont from all over Europe, each of them invited to take his chance, more risks, and pick from these three caskets. One is gold, one is silver, and one is lead. It's such a clear choice if you think about it, but Shakespeare sets it up dramatically so we meet two of her suitors while Bassanio is getting the cash from Shylock. And naturally enough, in turn, they pick gold and silver. The Prince of Morocco, the first suitor, gets one of the most interesting pleas from all of Shakespeare's characters of different races. Immediately he enters the stage and says, Mislike me not for my complexion. A rather ugly web of racial attitudes is mapped across and maybe underneath this play. Although it's often cut, Portia jokes after the prince makes the wrong choice that it's a gentle riddance. Let all of his complexion choose me so. The line is often cut because we want Portia to be lovely and sometimes people try and justify it and explain away what the word complexion means but it really can't mean anything than what the Prince of Morocco introduces himself with, the colour of his skin. Portia wants a husband who looks like she does, and she's quite xenophobic and even racist about all the other men vying for her heart. And her cash. It turns out that the humble choice is always the good one, as it has always been in most folktales, between Cinderella and her ugly overdressed sisters, between Lear's three daughters, as we shall see in another play, and even more recently in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Always pick the humble choice. It's so clear that it seems silly, and yet this plotline is documented in that extended title for this play. Portia says a great many words that rhyme with lead before Bassanio makes his choice. She's really stacking the deck for him, since she likes him too, and indeed he looks the way she wants him to, and surprise, surprise, he makes the right choice. Things get complicated, however. Word comes from the city that Antonio is in big trouble because his ships are lost and now Shylock wants the debt repaid. Bassanio rushes back and Portia decides to follow him. In this first half of the play, a number of other things have been going on in the other locations beside Belmont. Obviously, the deal has been made to get the cash and other people are moving between locations also. Shylock's servant Gobbo has left and been hired instead by Bassanio and Shylock's daughter has managed to run away too, robbing her father blind and eloping with her beloved, a rather feckless young man called Lorenzo. Worse yet, she converts to Christianity to be with him. She throws a casket of her father's cash out of the window, echoing a moment in the Jew of Malta, and then dresses as a boy to steal away. This prefigures what Portia will do. Equally happy with the filling from her father's caskets, she also dresses up as a boy and runs away from her father's house, hot-tailing it to Venice. She and Bassiano got married before he left Belmont. She's a shrewd businesswoman herself. Back in Venice, Antonio and Shylock's worlds collide in the play's major scene, the trial. In front of the Duke of Venice, the case will be argued for Shylock's, or rather Antonio's, pound of flesh. 
In one of the play's great speeches, Shylock has already railed against the juvenile, unpleasant young men Solanio and Salerio, who have mocked his loss of his daughter and his ducats. He responds by asking them, I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why, revenge. The villainy you teach me I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. The language that Shakespeare uses here is cold, and it's all about balance, as if Shylock is weighing out precisely what is owed and what is to be paid and what is fair. Elsewhere in the play, we have references to hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, and certainly passions, and of course food, since even sharing a meal with a Jew was not kosher. One of the most memorable of the questions that Shylock asks here is, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Ironically, this is precisely what he plans to do to Antonio in the fulfilment of his bond. There in the courtroom, he sharpens his knife and plans to extract that pound of flesh, but... Shakespeare reserve the upper hand. Because if Shylock pricks Antonio with that knife, he will of course bleed. And that is Shylock's downfall. For no particularly clear reason, other than her being a plucky Shakespearean heroine in a comedy, Portia dresses up as a man and presents herself in the courtroom instead of the other senior judge. Disguised as Balthazar, one of Shakespeare's favourite names, she manages to wander into this very high-stakes legal case and take over. Her first act is to ask who the merchant is and who the Jew. Bearing in mind, as discussed, Jewish people had specific clothes they had to wear, this is surely a strange question to ask. She doesn't take long to find her feet, however, and is soon making a very strong case to Shylock that instead of the pound of flesh, he could walk out of this courtroom immediately with double the amount of money that he's owed. Her big speech here, another often quoted passage from this play, is... The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Even in discussing mercy, that curiously human and beautiful thing to grant, she qualifies it in terms of who can benefit from it. Even mercy has a price in Venice. But don't be fooled. She calls Shylock Jew more than anyone else, I think, and this mercy she speaks of is reserved only for Christians. Indeed, she'll mock Shylock with it by the end of the scene. The Jew insists that he will have his bond. The word appears in this play more than in any other by Shakespeare. He is adamant and will not be talked out of it, even by this clever young lawyer. At the absolute last moment, Portia has an idea. The bond talks of a pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood. Thus Shylock is hoist upon his own petard, and worse yet, since it is determined that he's been trying to cause the death of a Venetian citizen, and him an outsider, 
a Jew, all of his properties are forfeit. The Duke takes half, and the other half goes to Antonio. And worse than that, his life is now in the Duke's hands. Antonio metaphorically picks up the knife when the Duke forgives him and allows him to live, and plunges it as deep as he can. First, Antonio stipulates that the money will go to Jessica and her new Christian husband. They've already been on a profligate spending spree, and she even gave away the ring that her mother gave to her father for a monkey. If this didn't hurt enough, Antonio also insists that Shylock must convert to Christianity. Shylock has by now lost his daughter and all the money she stole, and now everything else he owns, and his faith, and his community. The conversion idea is entirely Shakespeare's invention. Conversion had, of course, been a major concern in 16th century England, as successive monarchs imposed Protestantism and Catholicism over their reigns. Conversion was a wise move in these circumstances. But Antonio's idea is far more shocking and cruel. Don't think for a moment this is any kind of missionary zeal attempting to bring the Jew to the light of a Christian god. Making Shylock convert means that he will lose his place in his community, and worse than that, he will lose his livelihood. Since he is now a Christian, he cannot practice usury anymore. It's a viciously clever move. The trial is concluded, and everyone starts to plan their homeward journeys. Portia needs to get back to Belmont as quickly as possible before she's missed, as Bassiano, who manages not to recognise his wife at all, is thanking this clever young man, as he sees it, Portia asks him for a pretty ring she sees on his finger. It's a ring that she herself gave him, and he's unwilling to part with it because she made him promise not to. He's doing well so far, but then Antonio insists, since this young man, Portia, saved his life. And Bassiano does indeed hand it over. Back in Belmont, we catch up with Lorenzo and Jessica, presumably exhausted by now after spending all that money. They have a strange little scene together, likening the moonlight they're standing in to various scenes from literature and mythology. None of them is very promising. The characters they mention are Cressida, Dido and Medea, all of whom had dreadful things happen to them. And indeed, their lovers Troilus, Aeneas and Jason were all unfaithful husbands. You want to scream to Jessica that she'd just get out now and go back and comfort her father. Portia and her plucky maid Nerissa arrive back, and there's a whole to-do about the missing ring. Or rather, rings, since Nerissa has also gone out in boy drag and also gotten a ring from her new husband, Graziano, that she had also given him. Graziano is the sourest, nastiest character in the play. It's said that he speaks an infinite deal of nothing, and it's really quite true. He jokes, and he's casually cruel here and there, and a smug adventurer that feels like the prototype of the Wall Street trader. He gets a few cheap laughs, but honestly, you wonder why Nerissa would ever bother with him. Eventually, the ladies reveal their trick, that it was them dressed up as boys all along. This speaks to another curious energy that courses through this play. The two men, Bassiano and Gratiano, are so captivated by these two young lawyers, beautiful young men, that they're entirely happy to hand over important gifts from their wives without a second thought. They're forgiven pretty quickly, because no actual infidelity has happened, but this blurred line is a seam running through the play. At the very beginning, Antonio himself is wondering why he is so sad. He can't quite articulate what is wrong with him, despite several provocations from his friends, 
but it becomes increasingly clear that he's in love with Bassiano, and that this is why he's prepared even to die for his friend, as well as taking a bond for so much money. There's a terrible sadness, then, at the end of the play, when all these couples smugly pair off in Belmont, in the weak moonlight, and Antonio is left as he was at the beginning, alone. The frustration he's going through is perhaps an explanation, if not an excuse, for just how cruel he is to another person in the play. The Merchant of Venice ends even more bleakly than Love's Labour's Lost, when mourning interrupts. Here, we have three couples and a lovelorn bachelor. We don't even have four matches. And it's hard to imagine that any of them will wind up happy. In terms of a book recommendation to accompany the play this week, I was tempted to suggest Peter Brook's recent collection of essays called The Quality of Mercy, but it actually doesn't have anything to say about this play. There's much more to be found in James Shapiro's landmark study, Shakespeare and the Jews. Really, it is the most extraordinary book written about this play, and particularly about Shylock and the entire Jewish experience. And Professor Shapiro has such fascinating ideas about the play that I was loath to include them here. But absolutely, seek it out if you're interested. There's no finer study of this material. Next week, we'll move away from comedy, somewhat, and return to England and the history plays. Our next choice is Henry IV, Part 1, and in it we'll meet Shakespeare's next great prose speaker, the indomitable Falstaff. I'll speak to you then. <laughs>